today's guest is someone that pretty much everyone on FinTwit knows, and they know him for one theme and one theme only, and if you're looking for that theme today, you might as well just turn off the podcast right now. I'm talking about Harris Kupperman, also known as Cuppy. He is the founder and portfolio manager of Praetorian Capital. We're going to dive into everything that has to do with Cuppy's investment process, uh, his stories about his travels, investing abroad, investing on the frontier markets, and what he looks for in investments and asymmetric opportunities. So Cuppy, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right, so let's let's kind of dive into your background because I really don't know too much about you as a as a, as a person, um, you know, outside of investing. So, kind of, how did you get started in investing, and and what led you uh, to your career now? So, I got started investing kind of a roundabout way, really. Um, in during the Asian financial crisis, I was at Phillips Andover Boarding School and. I remember just watching on TV all these guys in suits that were losing fortunes. And I'd always been pretty good at math. And I just kept watching these guys in panic and said, if these people are losing money, well, someone has to make money. I I didn't realize at the time that it's not always zero sum. And so, you know, I just said to myself, I'm going to figure this thing out because I feel like it's solvable. And I I had uh, cleaned pools that summer. And so I had a couple thousand bucks in my uh, bank account. And I put it into a brokerage account. These were back in the days when you had like a dial-up modem. And I started uh, investing. And, you know, a lot of what I had thought would be uh, useful information turned out to be useless. I lost a bunch of money early on. But I just started muddling through and trying to figure it out. And eventually I kind of cracked the code. And then uh, my senior year of college – I've been giving stock tips to a lot of my dad's golfing buddies, and they've made a lot of money. And some of them came to me and they said, can you manage some of our money directly? And so I started a a hedge fund, I guess you'd call it, in uh, 2003 with uh, $90,000 in it. And I had two clients on day one. And that's where it's all grown from. And, you know, I've been doing this for the better part of 20 years now. Wow. So it's 90,000. That's that's awesome. And this was and this was what, right after right after college? Well, in my senior year of college, I mean, uh, I was living in a uh, pretty crappy house next to campus with uh, three of my friends. And, you know, we drank all night and I invested all day and then muddled through class. But, um, you know, the numbers were so good my first year because it was 2003. We were coming out of that uh, mini recession in 2002. And, you know, at the time, the the best opportunities to me were these – uh, small consumer companies. There were a lot of them that uh, traded down to three and four times cash flow. A lot of them had no debt. They they're trading for basically working capital, and working capital was receivables from you know grocery stores and CVS and Walmart yeah. and whatnot. I mean, there was just no way to make to lose money because they were growing thirty, forty percent a year, and you were buying with three times earnings. And you know, a lot of them turned out to be ten baggers and. You know, when you looked at these, a lot of these in, say, 2000 had been $20 stocks, and they traded all the way down to 4 or $5 during that little recession. So it was just a great time to start a fund. And, you know, I was up over 200% that year. That's not bad. Not a bad first not year. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> it's a high watermark to set for yourself. <laughs> so what is what did, what did that early investment process look like for you in terms of finding ideas? I mean, I said you you alluded to it where you said, you know, you kind of – you know, figured it out or it kind of clicked for you? And when did it click and what did it look like when it clicked? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, early on, I would say I was more of a trader than a uh, stock investor. You know, I, I started actually looking at chart patterns and reading books on charts. And then hey. 
Yeah, and look, uh, char- <laughs> I mean, look, charts are predictive in a way, but you know, it's also backwards looking in a way. And I kind of I came to realize that, you know, if you can't overlay charts with some sort of uh, theme, then you're you're not gonna be correct. You need the both to line up, whether it's a macro theme or an earnings story or something fundamental. It all has to line up together. And so, um, you know, I started doing a lot more on the fundamental side. I'd say today I'm probably 80% fundamentals and, you know, 20% charts. You know, fundamentals tell you, hey, something's happening here. And then I wait until the charts line up so that I have a low risk entry. Uh, But, you know, I started mostly on the chart side. And, um, you know, I was really uh, risk adverse because when I first started investing the money I had made cleaning pools, I had lost a lot of it. And that was all I had, you know. So, right. um, and it wasn't even that much money. It was a few thousand bucks. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really was uh, balance sheet focused and I still am balance sheet focused where I wanted to know that if I was uh, wrong about something, I'd get my money back. And so I was really looking at uh, liquid assets in the balance sheet. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really know how to value uh, PP&E, for instance. And so I, I was just making sure that I couldn't really get hurt. And the, the great thing is that in the early 2000s, things were so cheap that you could really buy phenomenal companies at three to five times earnings. Yeah. And so, I mean, you didn't have to be all that smart. You just had to not make any mistakes. Yeah, no, and it's 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 so interesting. And, you know, I, I made that I made that comment when you said you looked at charts because that's something that I do very much in my process. And it's almost, you know, I'm I'm afraid to mention it and venture it out there on Fintwit. I mean, I'm slowly starting to put some chart patterns out there just because it's so I guess there's such a there's such a, you know, budding of heads between, you know, the chartists or technical analysts, if you want to call that, and value investing. But you nailed it on the head where it's, you know, the fundamentals match up and then the, and then the technicals match up to give you that asymmetric risk reward entry opportunity. Um, do you, you know, do you do you think that do you think that more people should use basic classical? I mean, I'm not talking, you know, I, you know, I don't know if you do like, you know, Fibonacci's or Bollinger Bands or anything, but I'm talking oh, about just simple, that. simple support and resistance. Do you think more people should incorporate that into their strategy? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure I'm a support and resistance guy. I want to see something happening, you know, quote unquote. So if something's stuck in a downtrend, then you don't want to be buying it. You want to see something that shows some form of strength that lets you know that that downtrend is going to reverse itself. And, you know, at that point, you're going to want to have some something where you have a level where you say, you know, if it breaks this level, you know, it, it's broken this downtrend, but I know that the 52-week low is here. So if it breaks that low, I'm probably wrong. And at least you have a reference point for where you might want to get out. I mean, I'm not very religious that it stops. And, you know, sometimes I come to regret that and sometimes it's the right move. But um, at least you want to have a reference for where you want to be. I mean, Going back to my uh, early investing career, the first real win I ever had in my lifetime uh, was a company called Philip Morris. You guys all know it. And in 2000, it traded at like a 23, 24% dividend yield. And this is right at the time that the states were all suing them and everyone else was suing them. And everyone said that tobacco was going to die. And I look at this balance sheet that's absolutely pristine. It's just printing money. Plus, you have this dividend. And I saw this trend line break where it stopped going down. It started showing a little bit of strength. And, you know, you could just you could zoom in on the chart even now 20 years later. And it's just a textbook trend line break where this thing had been trending down for a bunch of years. And it started to, started to show some strength. It chopped around a little. It started to go higher. I mean, I put my dad and all my, my dad's golfing buddies in. And it was basically a five-bagger in like three years. <laughs> Plus, they got a bunch of dividends along the way. Right. I mean, 
I mean, we were buying this thing at like three times cash flow and it eventually traded up quite a lot. And so, you know, it, it shows how, and a lot of what I do also is looking for somebody that's down a lot. You know, I have a very strong value component in what I'm doing. You know, I'm not usually buying something at 52 week highs. I'm buying something that's making some sort of bottom where all the worst news is baked in. And I have a fundamental reason for why it's going to get better. And you know, I've done this my whole life. And maybe that's just because my first win was Philip Morris. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I'm always looking at the lows instead of the highs. I mean, I have a lot of friends that only look at the highs. And you can't fault them for that because their track records are great. But um, you know, I'm always basically saying this thing's just been in a death spiral for five years. And I think the news flow is going to change. And the, the, the valuation's reasonable. And uh, let, let, let's line it up with a chart so I know that the downtrend is ending now. Yeah. And when, when you overlay all of those things, uh, you usually make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it's basically creating a sense of like redundancy within your plan. Whether you know you've got the balance sheet that protects you, and then you've got the reversal of the trend, and you're not catching. Really, it sounds like a lot of it's just trying to avoid those falling knives. And then you know what? Every couple of years, you have just a great run, and uh, you have to relearn all the lessons again. <laughs> and so, you know, you end up with situations like this uh, sandwich, which uh, I mean, I can't believe I let a stock go from uh, ten bucks to a dollar. Basically, it was two dollar stock today, and you know, I always thought it was cheap on the way down. And instead of stopping out because the chart was clearly in a trend, in a downtrend. I just kept saying, can't go much lower, can't go much lower. And, you know, when it, I mean, you look at the chart now and you can say, you know, as soon as it broke above like a buck 25, a buck 50, wherever it is that you could draw your, you know, your little funny line, hey, it's actually putting in positive strength now. And, you know, that's where I should have been buying. And my cost basis on this thing really should be like a buck 50 instead of, you know, three and a half bucks. Right. And so, I mean, just because I say this doesn't mean that, you know, even the pros don't make mistakes sometime. And, you know, I think you have to get a few wrong every few years to relearn all these lessons and, you know, just keep yourself in tune. Do you think that the, you know, the use of, you know, because Michael Burry was really the first value investor that I read that incorporated what he called bare bones technical analysis where, like you alluded to, if it broke below the 50, like he would buy it on the lows. If it broke below the lows, he would just cut and sell. And do you think that's less of downside protection for the portfolio and more of the mental capital protection, saving mental capital instead of seeing that stock or instead of seeing that stock decline with you on it? You can sit on the sidelines, watch it decline, and then that gets you more excited because now you're not experiencing that. Although it's a paper loss, it's still mentally a real loss in your head. Do you think it's more that mental protection than the actual portfolio protection? Well, I mean, the portfolio protection is the number one thing. You're not supposed to lose money in this game. Uh, but, you know, from the mental side, you know, I think different people are different. I, I have friends who they're down 10% in a position. They call and cry. I mean, I'll be down a lot more on something. And I, I just. I guess my my construction is different. I just don't think about it very much because you know it's only money one and two. If I think I'm right, then who who cares? It, it, I get more upset honestly not when I lose money, but when I have a rule in place and I break my own rule and you know I lose money because I broke a rule as opposed to losing money because you know I lost money that day. I mean the, the only reasons to really get upset in this game are you, you lost money because you made an unforced error somewhere, you know, you you built your model wrong or you misunderstood something or you got lazy or sloppy. You know, if you're following a few hundred stocks, of course you don't have enough time in the day for everything, so you will 
gloss over stuff and make mistakes. And I mean, I, I hate myself for that when I make a mistake just because I, I, I got sloppy on something or, you know, I, I just thought something was something and it was different. But then, you know, the, the, the other reason you get upset is you have a rule like I'm not going to do this unless this happens. And then you, you do it. It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to wait for this thing to break a downtrend. And then you go, oh, it's just so damn cheap. Let's start with a 30% starter position. And the next thing you know, you know you're down 20% of that starter position. <laughs> and you're, you're kind of wondering, it's like, well, what part of my rule book says I need a starter position, you know? Right, right. So, I mean, that's the sort of stuff that gets me upset. Yeah, and so let's let's kind of dive into that in terms of your evolution of your investing philosophy. So you started, you know, senior year of college, you're managing your father and his golf buddies' money. At <laughs> what point? At what point do you start? You know, I guess I guess tell us about your first kind of big challenge or first big uh, drawdown and how you manage that in the portfolio because you had a fantastic opening year, right? Up, up, up two hundred. But obviously, you know that doesn't last into perpetuity. So tell us how you manage that first big drawdown and the inside lesson. The fund? Yeah, yeah, inside the fund. So when I was investing my own money, you know, I had drawdowns. It's part of the game, and you know, to be expected, really. And I never really thought much about it because, you know, my money. When when you when you lose someone else's money, it's a very different feeling, especially when it's someone you've known for years and years, and you know you you know you have to go see that guy at uh, you know the family barbecue this, this this summer, and to tell him hey I'm down money, it's, it's, there's a mental side to it that I don't think people appreciate enough, mm-hmm. and you know the danger is that you use that mental side to make unforced errors because oh I'm down I'm going to book this so it doesn't get any worse and really you should have been buying or vice versa. So, I mean, that's the first thing. You have to – you can't change how you're doing things just because you have OPM. Um, you know, my first big loss, I don't – in 2004, in uh, early 2004, I had a pretty nasty drawdown. Not because I was wrong about anything. I mean, look, when you're up 200-something percent for the year um, you're bound to have a pullback in the things you're long and, yeah. you know – I'm not the sort of guy that hedges. I'm not really the sort of guy who buys puts on stuff that's cheap or, you know, trades around because I don't like paying taxes. I think a lot of funds try to structure themselves so they never have it down 3% month. And, you know, I always say that if you don't have it down 30 uh, pullback every 18 months, you're probably, you know, not maximizing the upside. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I've always found that pull that pullbacks, that they, they usually happen when, let's say you buy a stock at 10 and it goes to 30, and then it pulls back to 20, okay? And so you can look at me and say, hey, Cuppy, you just lost a third of the money. It went from you know 30 to 20. And I can say, no, I just doubled the money this year. And yeah. you know, kind of both, right? And I, that, that, that's what happened to me in 2004. You know, before that, I don't think we actually even had a down month in 2003. And so um, you know, it, it, was, it was kind of weird and depressing, and I had just had some inflows. So – you know, the fund had gone from maybe we ended the first year with like two and a half million dollars. Now we're like five or six million dollars. And, you know, I, I just taken that money in. And it was weird because the way the math works is that let's say you're you have two million dollars of profits the first year and then you take in a few million dollars. Well, if you have a 25 percent drawdown, suddenly while you're only down, say, 25 percent from the highs and, you know, your fund track record says you're up over 100 percent still on a dollar basis, you've just, you know, you're actually down a few hundred grand in dollar terms. And it was kind of scary to think about it because, I mean, I, I was 22 and I'm down a couple hundred grand of other people's money. It, it, it was kind of scary. And you know what I did? I basically took a deep breath, 
went through every position to say, would I be a buyer or a seller here? And I said, I'd probably buy more. And I just bought some more. Because if you're not a seller, you, you really ought to use a pullback and add some. And there's a lot of ways you can add. I mean, you can go out there and buy more shares. You could write some puts, and that gets you longer at a lower price, or you collect some premium. And I just did a combination of all of that because I, I knew what I owned, and I had confidence in what I owned, and thank God I was right. <laughs> so how have your how have those mistakes that you've made um, how how have they evolved over time? Do you find yourself making less of the same mistake, and maybe making you know more of of a of a new mistake as you've matured as an investor, and as you've kind of you know gone through more cycles in the markets yeah absolutely i mean look i make some of the same mistakes over and over again just because uh you know if you have a really good run eventually the trading gods take a bit of it back it's just the way it works yeah but i, but I, I like to believe that i find new and creative ways to lose money and you know <laughs> <laughs> if i was doing the same thing over and over again i mean i really shouldn't be allowed to run money it's uh it, it, it's really a, a point that you uh need to push the the barriers and learn new ways that uh, stuff can go wrong. And look, if you make the same mistake once, you know, shame on me. You make the same mistake twice in the same year or two, you know, really shame on me. And, uh, you know, if you do it a third time, you, you really shouldn't be in this industry. If you do it, you know, once a decade or once every five years, it just happens. There's so many landmines in, in investing that you're eventually going to end up uh, stepping on one of them. So what are what are, what are some of the landmines that you think most value investors tend to step on the most? I think value investors are just inherently attracted to cheap. And I can name you stocks that were cheap when I started in this industry and they're still cheap and they'll probably be cheap when I retire. And there's nothing wrong with the companies. They're reasonably okay businesses even. And they just trade at five times earnings, and you could make the case they ought to trade at 10 times, but they're just going to trade at five times because there's no catalyst to unlock the value. Hmm. And they will pay you out the cash flow and the dividend. They'll reinvest a bit of it. It's just – I think people are attracted to valuation, and you know whether it's uh, some of the parts or you know discount to nav or any of these things. You, but to get paid – and we're in the IRR business here – uh, you need something that is a catalyst that unlocks this value. You need either dramatic earnings growth, you need a corporate action, you need a buyback, you need something that unlocks the value that you see. Otherwise, it's just going to be cheap forever. And I see a lot of people on the value side looking at stuff that's cheap. And yeah, it's, it's really cheap. I, I get it. And then they have no catalyst or even worse – it's one of these situations where it's slowly shrinking and you could build a DCF and say this business is going to decay at 3% a year and they don't bake in that year three or four, that uh, decay rate will accelerate. It's kind of like, like let's look at uh, C-class ball uh, companies, okay? I mean these things the whole way down over the last five years have traded at like three times cash flow. And I know so many guys that lost fortunes in these things because they were like 15% dividend yields, three times cash flow. Everyone thought they were cheap, and they really were cheap, uh, but they were decaying assets. And at first, they actually were comping positive on uh, Same Store and NOI. But then, you know, those started uh, f first the second derivative went negative, and the first derivative went negative, and then it just collapsed. And suddenly you realize that when you have that many turns of debt on a asset structure, I mean the, the whole thing can collapse. And right, I've just seen guys 
look at these and say, ah, it's probably going to decay 1% a year. And it turns out on a levered balance sheet operationally and financially, you know, 1% a year really starts to matter a lot. And the, the, I'm just surprised how much money has been lost in things that are cheap. Yeah, and it's actually you know a perfect a perfect segue to a conversation. Um, you know, I know it's further down in the in our little podcast outline here that I sent you, but I I want to dive into it now. Uh, and it's and it's based on the blog post that you wrote titled "What Does Cheap Really Mean?" And this was <laughs> this this was probably my favorite post of yours because I because what I did is when I you know when I researched guests and stuff, if they've got a website, I'll go back and I'll do you know, chronological order from the first blog post ever going, going through. And so this one stood out and it's probably the most evergreen piece on there along with, along with others. But I want to, I want to read two quotes and then I just want you to kind of take the floor and flesh out on these ideas. So the first quote is, this leads to a bigger question. The idea of what does cheap really mean? Do this year's earnings even matter? Probably not. Most people know roughly what this year's earnings will look like. They even have a reasonable guess about next year's earnings. No one knows what will happen in three or five years. That's where you should focus your attention. Look for businesses that can earn many times what they are going to earn this year. Look for growth. And then the second quote that you said, which perfectly ties into what we just talked about, this may be counterintuitive, but companies that are actually cheap often do not seem cheap using conventional metrics, yet those are the ones that you want to buy, end quote. So just kind of take us through this idea of cheap being cheap for a reason and the stocks that you really want to invest in you're not going to find in a PE under 10 screener. Right, okay. Um, hmm, let me think how to address this. I mean, for uh, what, what does cheap really mean? I mean, you have to play it forward a bit and you have to know where things are going. It's kind of... You know, look at this whole COVID thing. Um, I got the bottom. I, I got the absolute bottom. You did. <laughs> I, but, I, but I got lucky. I could have been a week early, and I could have been 20%, 30% early. I was about 5% early. I started buying about three days too early. And, I mean, and a lot of stuff I bought dropped 20% the next day, and then it dropped 20% the next day. I was, <laughs> I had some of these I was down 30 or 40% on. And, I mean, they've since come back quite a lot, and I look brilliant, but – I mean, some of these things, I, I was amazed how much they dropped just because guys had margin calls. But when you think of a company and we're in a zero interest rate environment right now, um, you're not buying Q1 or Q2 earnings. You're, you're buying, let's call it the next uh, five years of earnings. So you're, you're looking at 20 quarters. Well, we know the next two are going to be terrible. What do the next 18 look like? Do you think this business is going to be uh, – impacted by covid you know are you in the cruise industry or hotel or airline or are you in some business that probably has almost no impact from covid but is just part of the mar uh, the global uh, margin call and yeah q1 and 2 will probably be terrible but what does you know 2021 20, look like and you know I, I think people focus so much on this quarter and next quarter and last quarter just because that's where they have the visibility and you know no one I don't think enough people are willing to take a leap of faith and say, what do you think this business looks like uh, year 2025? Let's build the 2025 you know, income statement and work backwards and see how much capital is needed to get there and how you get there. Right. And you know, I'm not saying build a giant financial model. I'm just saying build this model in your mind. But Because um, you, you don't have to be precisely uh, correct. I mean the, the only thing to be you know, worried about is being precisely wrong. Um, and – I don't think people look at that enough. I mean, in terms of uh, a lot of the stuff that I've done over my life, I've seen a lot of companies that are losing a bunch of money, and you can look forward two years and say they're just amazingly profitable businesses. 
and management is doing all the right things by losing money because they're growing so fast. Or, right. you know, it's a cyclical industry that's just had a terrible go of it. You know, nat gas or tankers right now, and I don't want to get deep in the weeds on them, but these are industries that have lit money on fire for years and years and years, and you could play it forward. It's probably going to be better incrementally, and it, pro- it, it almost certainly won't be worse. Um, and I think you have to look forward and not backwards so much. Um, you know, a company I'm long right now is a company called St. Joe. Uh, it, I think it's the cheapest stock in the galaxy right now. Um, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really have much in the way of earnings. It's, uh, really hard to dig into what they have. It's, it's almost one of those perpetual value traps. They own some land and they really have been very slow to monetize the land. But when you go there and you actually look at what they're doing and look at how they're strategically positioning the company and you see what's actually happening, you realize this is a company that's probably growing 20 or 30 percent a year. And you can come into it at a single digit earnings multiple while you get like $200 a share of land on the side for free. And, you know, you you don't get very many chances to buy something growing 30% a year at a single digit earnings multiple. And yeah, that's on 2022 earnings, but you could look at what's happening and see what the pipeline of developments are. And, you know, you have almost no downside because they have no debts. And yeah. meanwhile, they're harvesting land and buying back stock because insiders see what, you know, I see as an outsider, but you have to, you know, use some mental arithmetic to get to where this thing is going. And you have to go to the Florida panhandle and spend a week to figure it out. You gotta go see all their assets and see how all the money that's is, has already been invested that'll be harvested five years in the future. What does this business actually do? Because I'm 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 interested in kind of using this as an example to dive right into your investment process and to how you find ideas. So what this business, it used to be a forestry asset. They own a few hundred miles of coastline in the Florida panhandle. Florida being a rapidly growing state, uh, uh, they uh, are seeing massive inflows into the state of Florida for tax reasons, retirement reasons, whatnot. And these guys have uh, land on the coastline, and they're basically building uh, uh, housing, whether it's single family or multifam. They've outsourced the capital intensive stuff, which is building and, uh, you know, putting money to work. They own the land. They will give you entitled land. You build it in a JV, you invest the money. And these guys at St. Joe are partial owners. They will put in the sewers and the improvements. They'll get you the permits they need, but they're basically getting someone else to put up the money and take all the risk. Right. And they have a land bank that will last the rest of my life and a couple of lifetimes afterwards. Meanwhile, um, once you've uh, infilled this with people, and right now there's not a lot of people around there, uh, St. Joe then has the ability to build all the really high return stuff. You know, that's your CVS and your Starbucks that you sell at a three cap uh, stabilized to some REITs. And so they can do some of that work. And this huge return on capital there, you know, you have three, four, five times developer margins. And so, you know, they're keeping the really juicy stuff. Uh, they have a, an agreement with a company called Minto where they're going to build uh, the next Margaritaville. I think that's going to bring ultimately over the next 10 years a few hundred thousand seniors uh, to their land. And then they will backfill all your targets and uh, Starbucks and whatnot. But I, I think this is going to end up being uh, a, a true multi-bagger, you know, like 50 hunter bagger over the rest of my life. And I'm long. Uh, I used the pullback over the last uh, uh, couple of weeks actually to buy quite a lot. So when you, and, oh, go ahead. 
No, no, no. I just think it's odd that you could find somebody at a single-digit earnings multiple that's growing as rapidly as this is growing, admittedly from a low base. But I, I think that when you get to 2022 and you plug in all the things that they're building right now that, and you use sort of conservative uh, revenue uh, estimates for what they're going to produce in revenue and cash flow – you know, it, it's odd to be able to buy uh, high-quality real estate at a single-digit uh, cash flow multiple with almost no debt. Usually, when you get a single-digit uh, cash flow multiple, or even like a double-digit cash flow multiple, you're looking at four or five turns of debt on stabilized property, and you know that that's the recipe to lose a lot of money. The, the, these guys don't have uh, debt; they, they have net cash. Right. No, it sounds it sounds real interesting. Um, I wrote it down so I can maybe maybe take a look at it see if you know see if it's something i want to do more work on but i want to use that as a as a, as kind of a springboard for asking you you know how do you how do you find ideas how do how do new ideas pop into your brain and then and then once you find an idea what does that research process look like to do that deep work <laughs> so i have too many ideas and not enough hours um <laughs> I've done this for 20 years now. Uh, I'm just amazingly lucky that I have so many smart friends. I'd say 90% of my ideas, probably 98% don't come from me. Uh, tankers being one of the rare ones that I actually synthesize myself. Usually it's someone calling me up and they say, hey, Cuppy, you know, this seems like something you'd like. And I don't know why they assume that I might like this thing and not some other thing, but they're usually calling me up and telling me what they own. And it's usually because they're down already on it. And you know, they, they want someone to stress tested or you know they want to cry about it but a lot of my best investments have been when someone really smart is down by half on a, an investment and they're totally right about everything they say and they're just you know six months early or you know the quarter was bad and the stock got oversold i mean those are the greatest opportunities because someone already has all their research they'll send me their research file and they're totally right about it and you know, I'm just getting to buy it at half what someone really smart got to pay. Um, that, that's where I, I'd say a lot of my ideas. I mean, I scan insider transactions and, you know, I, I'm looking at the normal stuff everyone else's, spinoffs and privatizations and IPOs, but that stuff's all picked over now. You really got to be kicking around the new Lowe's index and talking to really smart people, you know, preferably people smarter than you. Right, right. Now, where do you spend, given given that, uh, incoming funnel of information does that lead you to a specific whether it's market cap or whether it's an industry like do you find yourself spending more time in smaller cap situations i just tend to find smaller caps are uh, more misunderstood and have more of a chance that uh, the, the price has just been beaten down more so you're coming in cheaper which means you have uh, less risk uh, you know, I always find that like a billion dollar company might drop to 700 million, but a hundred million dollar company might drop to 20 million, uh, you know, on a similar earnings miss or something. Cause you'll have one large shareholder that just wants out and, you know, there's no one to take the other side of it. Um, you know, my, my sweet spot's kind of in the 50 to let's call it 500 million market cap. And usually around that hundred to 200 is, you know, if you go too low, you're not really buying something that's a real business. You're buying a few assets, a lot of key man risk. And if you go much above, say, 500 million, it's, it's really well picked over. Yeah, and it actually reminds me of uh, one of the one of the posts that I read, and I think I think it was titled "Why Are You Even Public?" And it was it was the <laughs> idea. It was it was it was it which 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 resonated with me because I I try to focus in these highly liquid, very micro cap sectors or you know special special industries or whatever. And and that post kind of hit me. I was like, well, gosh, you know, if I'm looking at this six million dollar market cap company, why really are they public? 
And it's it's just, you know. But they shouldn't be public. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, – you were asking me where value investors make mistakes. I see a lot of guys buying to these things that are really, really cheap with minimal trading volume. And you kind of ask yourself, well, who the hell – I mean, how is this going to revalue? Unless there's massive earnings growth, maybe four times earnings is the right price because the market cap is $10 million or the free float is $10 million. I mean, there's nothing that makes someone say, I want to buy enough shares and move the share price up. Because uh, how do I get out once the share price goes up? And in the end, you know, day traders, you know, dominate day to day. But it's the, the the mutual funds that, or hedge funds that really move shares. And you need someone to be able to say, if I buy a million dollars of this, I can actually get out of it. Right, right. Now, when it comes to you found you found an idea, you've you've done your research, and you're starting to think about valuation. Do you, you know, how far how far do you project out? Is it just you know a simple three to five, and then do you has your has your valuation and framework gotten simpler over the years? Where it's you know a lot of people like to use the phrase back of the envelope. I'm a back of the envelope guy. Um, I feel like I've seen it all before at this point. And, right. No, there's always this new surprise. But you no, know, for me, you know, the first step obviously is the balance sheet. You know, it, how can I get hurt here, and how badly do I get hurt if I'm wrong? And that usually disqualifies about ninety percent of the stuff I look at. Um, you know, from there, I do a lot of inflection investing. I've found that you know there's a lot of strategies in the stock market, and you know there's guys that do everything, and I usually gravitate to where the most opportunity is. So. You know, there was a time where you could buy small cap growth, and we just talked about this, at three to five times uh, earnings. Yeah. And then you know, there was a time you could buy uh, you know, hidden assets, whether it was real estate. or. But one by one, these things get picked over, and they go in cycles. And so I always try to go to where I see the most opportunity, and I find the most opportunity right now are in uh, cyclical sort of industries where – the market is really looking at the last 12 months and not remembering that these go on 10-year cycles. And they used to have your Marty Whitmans of the world that would sit there and buy these things when they got below you know, uh, mid-cycle earnings. And right. he, would, he would set the base and the ceiling on these sort of things. But there's just not that much capital left in these sort of strategies because it's all been redeemed. So you, you have industries where, look, they don't earn money every year, maybe three out of every – five years or three out of every 10 years, this company's going to be profitable. And, you know, th there's a value and it's usually replacement cost or something like that as a metric you look at as a baseline. And, you know, I, I see the most opportunity right now in those sort of sectors that have really overshot to the, the downside, what the, the potential replacement cost or future value of these assets is. And then, um, the, the key being to wait until the news gets better and you, uh, have an inflection and, um, you know, I, I, I just see, feel like that's the sector that's not picked over right now. And sorry, I missed the first part of your question or just went on a tangent on my own. Yeah, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I love, I love when guests go on tangents and stuff. Cause you know, if anything, it means that they've got deeper thoughts on, on something and I kind of want to pick at that. But the first part of that question was, you know, how long, how far out are you willing to look out? And do you think there's, you oh, think there's yeah. a period where so too far is too far? Well, yeah, you can't go too far because the market looks at about a year or two. So you need to have the same rough approximation of the market. Otherwise, you're going to have dead money. But when you're looking at, say, inflections and you're asking about back of the envelope. Now, I remember why I went on my tangent. Um, but if, when you're looking at back of the envelope, like I have no back of the envelope on tankers. I don't really know how good the earnings will be because I don't know what the rates will be. So any model I build is going to be terrible. Nat gas, I don't know what 
price to plug in. So whatever my model is, can be terrible. All I have to know is that uh, the, the the key factor that's guiding the whole investment, which is you know the commodity price or you know the the rate price, is going to be better for a while. And then I just let it happen. I, I don't really build very complex models. And at an inflection, usually it all looks terrible. And you know you, you're usually violating debt covenants. And you know you, of course you're not going to make these massive positions and you're going to play it through a basket because you want to bet on the inflection happening, not, you know, one company refinancing their debt successfully. And you, you, maybe some won't make it to the other side. You know, it's just part of the game also. But, um, you know, I think uh, complex models, whenever someone sends me a complex model that, you know, uses more than about 20 cells, especially if it goes to multiple tabs, I don't even read the rest of the email. I just know it's not for me <laughs> because, no, I mean, look, three bullet points on a napkin is about everything you need in an investment thesis. You know, bullet point one, how do you get hurt? That's the most important. Bullet point two, what's happening? Bullet point three, is it cheap enough that if bullet point two happens, I can make a lot of money? It's that easy. I love that. Can you say it again? Because I'm going to write that down. (laughs) (laughs) Bullet point one, uh, how do I not get hurt? You know, so this thing has this factor that means that there really shouldn't be much downside you know bullet point two what's happening that is going to unlock this value so that's either you know hey this company's growing fast this you know this secular thing is happening this thing's happening that no one's really paid attention to i mean that's the core of the thesis and then number three am i getting in cheap enough that uh, this is not priced in yet and that, that, that's every investment thesis. There really should be no more to it. And when I say bullet points, that's five words on each. You know, right. is do I not get hurt? You know, it's no debt or, you know, net cash or, you know, half of replacement value, whatever the metric is. It, th- these are a couple words. The, the complex models usually due to the complexity, people think that they understand it really well because it's a really complex model. And Oftentimes they, they they miss the one key factor that actually matters in the whole investment. Yeah, I love I, I love that. It's something that I'm working on as well. And even even my last podcast with 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 George, he basically said, you know, have a have a one page thesis, you know, one to two pages max write up on a company with twenty pages of information upstairs. And that doesn't mean you have to put twenty pages on on you know on a on a on a sheet, but you know, just boil it down to the most to you know the most important factors and i i i really want to spend time on that second bullet point the you know what's what's happening to unlock the value because we've we've covered the first one how do i not get hurt you know strong strong balance sheets net cash all of those things but i want to take time to think about you know what's going to happen to unlock value in the frame of your breathe right example on your blog post and I love that. God, I made a lot of money on that. I think that was like a 15 bagger. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like 24 months, it was like a 15 bagger. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and the, you know, the real, the real core thesis behind that whole story is that, you know, if we're, if we're looking for hidden earnings power, call it, you can, you can find it in increased advertising and R and D expense, and then trying to normalize that over the next, you know, three to five years. So just kind of take us through that example and how, you know, that can kind of create that second bullet point of how a company unlocks value. So you guys have all heard of Breathe, right? Those are the the, the strips you put on your nose. And I've always had bad asthma, so I knew the product just because I'd wear it whenever I I, I was congested. And so um, it had been kind of a breakaway success. They had really grown it really fast in the late 90s. 
<clears throat> but they grew it through just massive television advertising. They, they just spent a fortune at this stuff. And then eventually competition came and uh, you know, the, the revenues collapsed because people started undercutting them. And, uh, and they brought in a new CEO. The founder kind of went upstairs as chairman. And this lady said, we don't have to spend $100 million a year advertising this thing. Um, you know, the target market isn't uh, NFL players anyway. Like, why are we advertising in these channels and not these channels? And she started doing a more guerrilla campaign. They were spending – they went from about $100 million a year to $10 million, $15 million a year of advertising spend. And she said, look, we lose money at this at this revenue level. And she was willing to accept that the revenue would collapse because they'd be profitable. They outsourced uh, the manufacturing which actually increased the margins quite a lot because, uh, you know, you can't be an advertising company and a manufacturing company. They um, started going to people more like me who are uh, repeat users, and uh, they started going more towards uh, doctors and trying to push this into people's hands and say, try this product. Because once you try it and you have a cold or, you, you know, you're, you're congested, you're probably going to use it every cold season. And, but it was a slow build because they were giving free samples away. They were doing more targeted advertising. And while they were building it, they, they were kind of making some small money. Let's say they were making a million or two million dollars a year. And, but if you were able to back into what you thought uh, the real annuity – because they were growing like 20, 30 percent a year off of a lower revenue base now. If you could back into what the true annuity cash flow of this thing was – uh, with people who would come every season and, and buy another box, and uh, you, you kind of backed into it, you realized it was like a three or four times earnings company. And of course, it's a super small. I think it's like forty million market cap. Though they did have like twenty million of cash, which was you know point one protect your downside, right. and it was profitable. But you know, on, on an earnings basis, it wasn't that cheap. It was a double digit earnings. But if you assumed that about half of the marketing was a sustaining marketing and half of the marketing was growth marketing and you got rid of the growth marketing, you came into this thing at a high single digit cash flow multiple with almost no capital tied up. So it's just like a couple hundred percent return on capital business you're coming into at a high single digit cash flow multiple, except it was growing like 20, 30 percent a year. And eventually the growth overtook the marketing spend. And you know, I think I came into this at like five dollars and they sold it at like 50 or 60 dollars. And there were some dividends along the way. And they, they sold out to one of the larger U.S. Uh, uh, companies that uh, – it's not bio, it's pharma or something. But um, – you know, it was just a, a home run trade over about two, two and a half years because I spoke with the CEO and she'd only been there for about six months and she walked me through her plan and her p plan sounded perfectly logical. And yes, revenue was going to comp negative the f early on while they got rid of a bunch of unprofitable and while they stopped just priming the pump on marketing that you know, they're spending a dollar of marketing to get 90 cents of revenue at a you know good gross margin, but they're still losing money. And so as they pulled back on that the, the revenue came in and then it troughed and then it just took off and then eventually they it got bought out about two three years later and yeah it was just a great company and that marketing spend was hiding the true cash flow of how great this was as a business and it, it really never should have been a public company in the first place but you know thankfully i had a chance to ride it and you know it was a really big position for me so it was great there too now when you're when you're looking at a at a you know we'll call it a and I know in this case, Breathe Right wasn't necessarily money losing, but we'll call them under under monetizing. Um, how do you how do you determine what a right or a roughly right uh, m margin 
figure would be, whether it's whether it's an EBIT margin or whether it's you know free cash flow margin. How do you determine that over you know looking out over you know two to four years? Is it is it is it the competition or is it just you know what you think and 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 and, and then you the investor getting creative on 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 knowing the oh, industry? Yeah. You have to be creative. I mean, um, they had a, co- a manufacturing contract with 3M, so I knew what the gross margin was, and you knew what the SGA was. So all you really had to look at was where do you think revenue is going to grow to, and what do you think it's going to cost in marketing to get there, and then you know you build you build in some sort of uh, operating leverage on that marketing spend, and these guys actually got a lot smarter at their marketing spend over time, which. You know, they 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 just it, it's kind of like a flywheel. It just made it more and more profitable. But uh, you just kind of build a model. By the way, for anyone trying to play at home, the ticker symbol was CNXS. If you ever want to go and pull up some of the old K's and Q's, uh, but I mean, you have to take a leap of faith on everything. Remember, these supercomputers out there right now, they can model damn near anything. Yeah. If it's obvious, it's modeled in. You know, that's why all these SaaS companies trade at such crazy multiples. The computers have looked at what 2030 uh, revenue and cash flow look like, and they've come to the conclusion that it's undervalued. We'll, we'll see in 2030 if that's you know correct or not. But um, you know, anything that's linear like this has been priced in in some way. You need something that is inflecting in some way. And here you had a situation where a company went from they basically cut half their un, un, half their revenue, which is unprofitable, and they stuck stuck with the core revenue and then grew that. And for a while, the unprofitable revenue was shrinking, and the core revenue was too small a piece of the pie, so the overall revenue was shrinking. And even back then, in say 2002, I, I think computers were smart enough to be able to model this stuff. It, you needed something that the computers wouldn't be able to model because you had to talk to management to figure out the two pies and how they were growing. Yeah, and the important thing to note is that you know as of right now. Computers really only are backward looking in terms of the last twelve months or you know going back further and trying to deduce trends and coefficients and determining what the next you know three years are going to look like given past data and I think going forward and we can we can certainly talk about this towards towards the end is kind of a cap, but you know going going forward, the real value for a active investor that's making these stock picks is to find companies that that you know the computer has no idea that although they lost money in 2020 or in 2019 they're actually going to make a bunch of money in 2023 because something's going to change and that catalyst is going to change and that's where the active investor has that edge as computers continue to dominate right and i think you know going back to my saint joe example here you have a stock that they have a lot of capex going on right now so if you look at a property company and i think saint joe gets lumped in with other property companies you know you're looking at a ton of capex so you don't really have any cash flow or minimal cash flow and i think that's the wrong way to look at it because they're building out uh, roads and sewers and you know all this other stuff needed to sell lots to developers so if they're selling a a, a lot to a developer for a hundred thousand dollars their build cost is maybe 25 grand and then yeah i mean they they have owned this land for 100 years so their legacy cost on the balance sheet is almost nothing. So you have huge margins. I mean, you're making three times your money every time you sell a land, uh, a home site, effectively. But because they're growing so fast, what you're seeing is all this CapEx, where you know they're basically putting in the infrastructure today for the home sites they're going to sell in 2022. So you see all this CapEx, and you see some revenue from home sites, and it kind of looks like they're not making any money at it. 
But when you back into it and you see how quickly the number of home sites sold, I mean, I think it's ramped from something like 100 a year to like 1,000 a year. And you see how that ramps and you actually do some math on it to figure out you know, what's going on. You, you, can, you can actually look at this and say, wow, they're just making a fortune. Yeah. And if, if in 2022 they sell anywhere near what they think they're going to sell, I mean, you're going to have all this cash flow. Of course, in 2022, they're probably going to be prepping 2024 uh, home sites, so you're not going to see that <laughs> cash flow. But at some point, you know, the, the, the growth will start slowing just because of law of large numbers, and then you'll see a ton of cash flow. It's, it's actually kind of odd that in a lot of businesses, you only see the true inflection in uh, the share price when the business actually starts slowing down and the cash flow shows up. And really, you want to be buying it when things are going as good as possible. But oddly, since most investors are lazy or stupid, they only notice how cheap it is when the, the, the growth has started, started to slow a bit, you know, your second derivative. And it, it's always kind of surprised me and confused me because, you know, I want to own this thing while the growth rate's accelerating, not when the growth rate's slowing. Yeah. And it's actually, I mean, I don't know if you planned this or not, but it's a perfect segue into the next theme I want to talk about, which was from your post um, on gearing and op- and operational gearing. And I'm going to I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read a quote from that from that post. I'm going to link, you know, for those listening, I'm going to link all these blog posts in my uh, in my description of this episode. But if you but if you haven't gotten a chance, I did tweet out every single blog post when I went through Cuppy's blog. I tweeted that out in a thread so you can you can find it there. But the quote the quote goes as follows. In my decade of investing, it is these gearing businesses that have made me the most money. I'm always stunned by just how well a business can sometimes gear. All businesses gear to some degree. However, there are some businesses that gear a whole lot better than others. I will talk about a few of these in the future. Just remember, operating leverage works both ways. If revenues start dropping, profits will decline even faster. So just to kind of set a, set a base, what do you mean when you talk about gearing in this post? So I'm I'm really talking about operating leverage, though. You know, you could you could use financial leverage in the, in the same uh, way, but you know, you have a fixed cost of running a business, and then you have a somewhat set gross margin, depending on what industry you're in, and this all leverages against that fixed cost. So if you have 10 million of SGA to run your business, you might be able to produce 50% more revenue, and you might only need to increase your SGA by five or 10%, which means that. A lot of that uh, money drops the bottom line. That's you know operating leverage, or I, I would call it gearing. Um, but some, I mean, oftentimes it can be surprising. You build the model and you can say, you know, this thing is going to do twenty percent more revenue and the del- uh, and the cash flow doubles. And you kind of like that can't be right. And you kind of check your numbers three times and you go, yeah, wow, these these guys really make a lot of money just because you have a fixed cost structure and you know put that against some uh, fixed interest and debt amortization and maybe a 20% change in revenue you know moves the overall cash flow two or three times even and so there's a lot of uh, gearing in certain businesses uh, that, that that's obvious on the upside i would say that a lot of people forget that on the downside that sort of uh, operating leverage can really be deadly and right. i don't think people uh, give that the sort of uh, credence it ought to have what is what is downside operating leverage look like? Well, let's say your revenue drops by twenty percent, but all your costs are fixed. I mean, you might have you might go from profitable to unprofitable, and then you know if you have fixed interest expense, like that's just layered on top. I mean, that's not going anywhere either. So you know there are businesses like an auto manufacturer where a few percent change in. Uh, total unit volume can be the difference between you know billions a year of cash flow and billions a year of loss. Uh, 
which is odd when you think about it, you know, a 5% change in volume. But that's how it leverage the businesses because you have, you know, fixed plant expenses, you have fixed XGA, you have marketing, you have unions that you really can't uh, scale up and down your worker numbers. Like, that's what makes it such a terrible business to be in is because so much of it's fixed. Yeah, and 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 going going forward in this post, you mentioned this 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 dichotomy between lower risk growth and higher risk growth. So what are what are some of the what are some of the symptoms? I guess if you want to call it that, what are some of the symptoms of what lower risk growth looks like? What do you mean lower risk growth? I'm I'm, I'm missing that too. Just just in t- just just in terms of you know a company growing the top line and that growth is more sustainable. And it's actually, you know, built in with the business model and the business can sustain that growth over time. Well, I think that's – you're making kind of a, a judgment call on the quality of the business and sustainability of the business. I don't think you can look at uh, uh, financial statements and, you know, tell if that's the case. I mean, of course, historical statements will show you how in past cycles this industry did. And, you know, that's a good starting point because I've had a lot of companies tell me things like, you know, we're, we're – you know – not exposed to the overall economy. And then you look and say, well, the last two recessions, you guys lost money. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not what you're saying. And so, um, but I think it's really a judgment call in terms of uh, how much uh, negative leverage you have there. And I mean, you could build it into a model and, you know, management teams have the ability to cut some costs. I mean, we've seen how during this crisis, this COVID crisis, management teams have cut their own salary. Board members have cut uh, board fees. I mean, th- there's some easy cuts to make. And, you know, then there's harder cuts. And so you do have a little bit of control over some of your fixed costs, but, you know, nowhere near as much control as you might have, you know, depending on versus your revenue uh, change. Yeah. And this, this, this question may be, you know, feel, feel free to just say, you know, I've, I've, I have no idea because this is something that just popped into my head. Do you have a, I guess, a, a preference for the type of business that you want to see in terms of the percentage of fixed cost to variable cost, or does that is that is that industry dependent or even company specific? I don't know if I really look at that as much. I mean, obviously, I want a business that is sustainable through the cycle, or is able to do what I think it's going to do. But increasingly, I find myself investing in really terrible businesses. Um, you know, the good businesses, the Warren Buffett business, the, 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 the business you tell yourself you want to own. I find that the multiples are so crazy that the best case scenario is already priced in, which means that if it doesn't go exactly according to plan, you're going to lose a whole lot of money, especially because a lot of these businesses have extreme operating leverage, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it takes something like Facebook. You know, if the if the revenue drops by twenty percent per click through, I'd say nineteen of that twenty percent drops through to the bottom line because your costs are fixed. So, you know, it, it's priced for the best case scenario, and maybe you don't get the base, best case scenario. This is an adjustment call on Facebook. I have no position. Um, but what I find is that right now, where we are in the cycle, and where you know, uh, active versus passive is, and everything else, truly terrible businesses are where the opportunity is. And you have to pick through those and figure out if you're willing to own them and at what price. And I always go where the opportunity is. And, you know, I've kind of built a mental construct that says I'm going to own something that's a pretty mediocre at best business. But I'm going to get in so cheaply and with a tailwind that 
you know, I'm going to make a lot of money. Um, and that's very different from where I was, say, when I was buying uh, CNSX, the BreatheRight company, where I was buying a phenomenal business uh, with huge tailwinds. You know, I, yeah. I'd much rather be buying a phenomenal business. But today, CNSX would have a billion-dollar market cap on like 30 million of revenue. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's just not uh, in the same sort of ballpark where you can go and buy, you know resource producers or you could go buy home builders or you could buy you know shipping companies at, at huge fractions of uh readily uh, ascertainable book value and so you know i'm really not buying the best businesses right now and i wish i could but in the end uh all your upside comes from the price you pay for something and so you got to be able to at least buy it at a discount to, to what you know, the future value is going to be. And I just don't see that opportunity many times right now in good businesses. Yeah. And it also sounds like there's an element of to at least, at least to your valuation thought process of, of expectations style investing uh, that, that, that Michael Mobison talks about where you take the stock price and then you figure out what has to happen over the next three to five years to justify that stock price, which is a little bit different in terms of thinking of, you know, creatively about earnings where you're, where you're projecting out, um, do you do you find yourself doing any of this expectation style investing where you're trying to back in what the current stock price means and then deciding okay no, you know, never, the company never. doesn't do that okay why why is that I'm more back of the envelope honestly um, you know I'm not going to look at something and say it's this price and that price is in this many years of losses because I mean what's the point I would only even first look at it if I thought that things were going to materially get better. Remember, these are terrible industries, okay, that I'm mostly owning right now. So knowing that, I really don't want to own them through the bad part of the cycle. I only want to own them in the really, really good part of the cycle. So unless you know the cycle is about to get really good, I, I don't need to price in how bad it's going to get at the bad part. I mean, at the bad part of the cycle, they usually go bankrupt. Yeah. Um, it, it's a different strategy, and I'm not going to tell you this is where I wish I was spending my time as an investor right now. But you know, you can't uh, choose the market you have to invest in. You you take what's given to you, and you find the opportunities. And right now, the opportunities are in highly cyclical industries that tend to be terrible businesses. Yeah, and let's 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 kind of go there right now uh, in terms of this and, whole... and let's ex- yeah, I mean. I think you also have to know that going into every one of these investments. If you go there and say, I think, you know, natural gas uh, E&Ps are a great business and, you know, because the full cycle, uh, you know, replacement ratio is this or, you know, I think nat gas is going to four dollars, which means, you know, the IRR for each, you know, uh, you know, each well is this like I think I think you're going to be asking to lose a lot of money. You really need to approach this and say, you know, Nat cast was a dollar fifty, and these guys sort of broke broke even. I'm, I'm on the lowest uh, part of the curve in terms of you know low cost guys, and I think things are going to get marginally better. And I can buy you know a, a PDP at two and a half dollar gas of a billion dollars, and I can spend two hundred million to buy it. Let's say so I'm buying this thing at a fifth of fair value, and if Nat gas goes to four, this PDP goes to two billion, and it's a ten bagger. Assuming we trade up to PDP, and I get you know everything that's you know not producing for free you can just look at this and be say you know this is really really cheap i want to own it and then you still have to say let's let this chart thing line up because i don't want to own it if you have another year of dollar uh, fifty gas because they're not really making money they're not really losing money but why tie up my capital and take all that risk in a pretty terrible business and i, I know I, i'm kind of rambling around circles but you know, i just kind of want to repeat that point 
Yeah. You really have to wait for it all to line up. Yeah, no, especially especially in these commodity linked type plays, which is which is exactly what you're talking about, or else or else you could get burned. I want to shift to a discussion. Um, I want to I want to talk about you know trusting your gut and then and then figuring out when to sell or or, or trying to think <laughs> about when to sell. But the 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 trusting your gut story I think is really interesting. And just just to provide a background for 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 the listeners, you wrote about a time where you first met with uh i don't know if he was a ceo or the cfo of a company and you know he was he was you know a fit guy he was passionate about the business he was excited that's all he wanted to do was talk about the business and then you know you started you started buying some shares off of that obviously you know you did your own due diligence and stuff like that you liked the company but this was really just the the kind of icing on the cake you're like all right i'm i'm in and then you made a bunch of money and then you met the guy later in a conference or something like that and he had gained a bunch of weight and he, you know, wasn't really talking that much about the business. I think he was drunk during the conference and it kind of made you sit back and think, you know what? I wonder if something's going on inside that business that's making him change. And then you allude to the whole trusting your gut, you know, selling at that feeling. So just talk to talk to us about that incident and what, uh, you know, what other investors like us can learn from that. So I would say maybe I got lucky in this case, but it turned out that I just made a gut feeling uh, response that turned out to be correct where I had invested with this guy a few years earlier and you know I, I went once a year and got myself a, an update and went to the corporate headquarters and you know th- th- this guy had been a marathon runner he was always in shape and you know, I, I saw him at an industry conference I hadn't seen him in about 12 18 months but the business was doing so well that I just didn't even feel like I needed an update and he had put on like 30 pounds he was sloppy and drunk he was the sort of guy that usually would have a glass of wine at dinner and that's about it and you know it just seemed like the stock had already been in like a 10 or 15 bagger by this point and you know he had turned you know his uh, investment stake plus options from maybe 10 million dollars to you know over 100 million dollars and he'd already cashed out quite a lot too and it just seemed like he was on that next phase of life where you focus on buying a boats and you know getting a new house and i mean the things he was talking about weren't the business anymore he was he was talking about you know his social life <laughs> and you know i i just said that you know, I went home and I said, this is weird. Like, this is weird. He's having a midlife crisis. And the next day I said, I got to sell. Like, he's just not focused on the thing. And, you know, the stock went up. It almost doubled again. And then uh, it collapsed about 95%. And, I mean, the, the company's still around. But it's just never really uh, gotten it together. And, you know, back then he was taking 200 grand a year salary. Now he's taking like $2 million in salary. Like, whatever happened where he uh, hit it big, I think it changed his outlook on things. And he started, you know, hanging out with uh, the political class, and he started uh, hanging out with like celebrities. And well, whatever happened, I think it, it changed him. And he's, you know, he's still got a bunch of money in the bank, and he's, I think, forever changed. And sometimes something you don't know what it is just strikes you and say, "This is odd." And as I've gotten more experience in this industry, I would say that I'm quicker and quicker to pull the trigger and exit a position. Because something strikes me as odd, especially when uh, something changes in the thesis, whether it's you know a corporation they make a big acquisition or they sell a division or they change the strategy, because you know everyone always says oh those management teams are so dumb they screwed this up and you know you, you you act like these guys are idiots and you can sit at home in your office and you know better for the business. Oftentimes these guys actually sit and think deeply about this stuff. And if they 
bought a, a division, then it probably means that they're trying to diversify out of the current thing they're in because it's not as good as they told you. If they sell an asset, well, maybe they lied to you about the asset. Whatever it is, you know, as soon as the thesis changes, I would say 98% of the time when something material happens, about six months later, you learn that it was totally the right decision. Everyone who said it was wrong didn't understand what was actually happening at the business. And you should have just gotten the hell out of the way. And I've just been faster at that. And you know, part of it, I think, for me is I run a very concentrated hedge fund. I, we have six to 12 names. And the average position size is 10 to 15% of our capital, which means that um, you, know, you can't – you can have one mistake each year and you're going to have a very good year. If you have two or three mistakes, you, 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 there's no way you're going to have a good year. Yeah. And so because that uh, concentration, it forces you to cull uh, an idea if uh, something changes. And I'm not saying you, you cut the position back by 20%. I'm not one of those guys. I'm either in or I'm not. And so if something changes, I just get out. Uh, as soon as uh, the, the thesis changes, I am out. And usually that day, I don't even try to get the best price. I just know that something bad always comes. So – you you said that you're either in or you're out where 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 did that come in has that has has that kind of style always stuck with you since you first started or were you the type maybe to take a starter position and then to add on and if that's changed why is that changed well i've just so let me start by saying that i found that when you have more than about 15 positions there's no way to know enough about them to uh not make mistakes. Hmm. I find that if I have a 2% position on, I know so little about it. I mean, I might know a lot, but I don't know enough compared to the guys that live and breathe it that I don't have a competitive advantage. Remember in finance, the smartest people alive go into this industry and you're competing with them. So, you know, there are guys who work at large hedge funds and they'll take a junior analyst and they say, you learned everything there is to know about this company, you know, not just you know the, the public filings, but you figure out how to get onto this guy's LinkedIn and his Twitter and you know friend his kids on Twitter and <laughs> on, on, on Facebook. I mean, and, I mean, but there are guys who literally do this and they micromanage these positions. They want to know everything, and I, I don't get that in the weeds. But if you have a two percent position, I'm competing against the guy with that much information. Like I don't have a competitive advantage. I, I need to be focused on the things I own, and so it kind of forces you to be disciplined. And if you have a 10% position and you sell 20% and it's now an 8% position, I mean, if you thought it was good to sell, like just sell the whole thing. I mean, obviously if it goes up a lot and it becomes too big of a piece of the portfolio, you have to take a little off and you know, that, 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 that's a little different, but I don't believe in partial positions and you know, I'm going to have a starting position at $10 and I'm going to track it for six months. Like, what does that even mean? I can track it. Without- <laughs> I mean, I could track it without owning shares, you know. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. So you know, this 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 kind of brings us to, uh, I guess, I guess we'll kind of you know put a put a pause on the direct uh, investment process and 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 investment related discussion, and I want to talk about your investment travels and where investing has taken you around the world because you have some incredible stories on your blog. I mean, I can't I can't get to all of them here in this time, but you know. Just, just, just talk to us about your your desire to really explore the frontier of the investment markets, and you know, if you want, you can talk about, um, you know, one of the one of the ones that I have queued up here is investing in um, Abidjan, and one of one of your quotes from that post, um, and this isn't even going into, you know, we can we can talk about 
you know, investing when there's blood in the streets where you're literally held at gunpoint and all that fun stuff because I want the listeners to get that story. But there was there was a quote from from this this one in Abidjan where you said, quote, there, there weren't a lot of companies still traded on the exchange there, but the few that traded sur- sure seemed cheap. In particular, there was a rubber plantation in the Rebel Zone that traded for three times earnings, had a 25% dividend yield, and traded for a minuscule percentage of the replacement value of the equipment. And it just kind of goes to show that there are these crazy asymmetric opportunities out there if you're willing to venture. And so, you know, what kind of what kind of first led you to exploring these frontiers? So when you say Abidjan, just to clarify, that's Ivory Coast. Uh, that, that That's where the stock exchange was. Okay. Um, what uh, made me go to Ivory Coast? I don't know. Uh, it, <laughs> it was a pretty dumb decision in retrospect. Um, <laughs> and I did get held up by – at. Gun- I, I got held up uh, at gunpoint by a bunch of uh, boy soldiers uh, right on the border between the government zone and the rebel zone, which was also pretty dumb in retrospect. Um, you know, you don't accidentally get held up at gunpoint by boy soldiers <laughs> in Africa. You know, that, that's one of those things that you need multiple consecutive errors of judgment to get to that point. Um, <laughs> so how high how high is your discount rate for being held at gunpoint? Oh, I, I will never do that again in my investing career. I promise you. Um, that's a what and done. <laughs> so, um, so then, so, so, so then, yeah, just kind of, just kind of talk to us about all the places that, 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 that you've been and kind of the markets and maybe what us investors take for granted here. So I, I've always been cu- curious about frontier markets. I find it very, uh, whimsical, entertaining. Uh, I tend to go to these countries and open little brokerage accounts and leave, you know, 10, 20 grand, more out of curiosity than because I intend to make a ton of money because, um, you know, you're not going to make that much money on $10,000 investment. Um, but I just find it interesting that you can go to a place where things are just materially mispriced, where there aren't a lot of uh, foreign guys. And that's not to say there aren't frontier funds because I have some friends who run some very successful funds and they really know what they're doing. But, um, you know, you don't have that much competition compared to the United States where – you're in the market with the most eyeballs on it. And even my friends, you know, if they run a $100 million frontier fund, they need a company that's trading a million dollars a day, which means that you have a lot of companies that are trading in the tens of thousands or even thousands of dollars a day that no one really is looking at, even the local guys aren't. And there's some real mispricings. And I always find it curious that you could buy, you know, an infrastructure asset at a 30% dividend yield, or, you know, you could buy the local beverage, you know, the local beer company, the Heineken affiliate. And, you know, it's like five times cash flow and growing 30% a year. These sort of things I've bought in my life, and they've been huge home runs. Uh, but, you know, I, I wouldn't say this is the core of what I do, and this is more personal money, but I just find it genuinely interesting as well because when you go to a, a frontier market, one, you know, there's not usually that much tourism stuff to see because it's not built for tourism. You might go on safari or something, or there's some historic ruin to go see. But I find that when you go to these countries, and you sit down at the head of the stock exchange. One, they haven't seen a foreign guy in six months. So they're kind of surprised why you're there. And two, they'll take you out to the lunch and dinner. And you can get a pretty good view of what's happening in the economy because you know, they're kind of interested in your perceptions because they want to grow their uh, financial system, right. whether it's you know, the broker or the stock exchange or whatever. And I'm interested to know what the financial system in the economy is. And you know, the local tour guide with the tuk-tuk, he, he just knows how many dollars he made that day. He doesn't really know what's happening in the economy uh, beyond you know, specific things like is it better or worse this year. So 
I mean, I like taking these meetings and meeting these people and having a blog is obviously, you know, helped open doors as well, which is always a great thing. So what's been your most exciting trip and kind of what's, what's, what's your favorite part of the world right now? Part of the world in, in what way to, to visit as a tourist? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To visit. Oh, I mean, if you want to go visit a place, go to like Mexico or something. It's effectively free right now. Uh, I mean, my wife's Mexican, so maybe I should say that because uh, <laughs> fair disclosure, but I love the food <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I just love Mexico. It's a ton of history, uh, beautiful country. It really gets the wrong sort of reputation. It's not dangerous, um, especially if you're a gringo. I mean, unless you're trying to compete with one of the narco terrorists and you know steal some territory from the guy or you know you, you, they want to be as far away from you as possible they want to operate their business with as little uh publicity and you know a, a, a wealthy dead white guy is probably the worst thing that could ever happen to their local <laughs> uh drug racket you know yeah less friction the better now 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 i guess when you put on your investor's hat Given, given all the countries that you've been to, you know, obviously this isn't kind of like a macro call or anything, but what are some, what, what are some countries on your short list that you're really excited about over the next, you know, five, 10, 20 years? To visit or to invest in? No, in terms of like, yeah, like the, 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 the investment landscape and kind of the, kind of the growth of that investment landscape. So I guess this is going to be a contrarian one, but I really do think that uh, Europe's going to figure this thing out eventually. Uh, everyone knows they have to do monetary stimulus because they've taken fiscal further than anyone ever thought was possible and they couldn't get the economy to work. And while, you know, assets are probably priced right, quote unquote, in say Germany, uh, I think on the periphery, there's a huge amount of opportunity. Um, and you get EU quality corporate governance and legal structures, but you get uh, frontier market sort of valuations. Hmm. And this might tie in a few of the points we've made today where you look at something and you're going to Spain or Italy or Greece or Portugal and you're looking at these and saying, well, they're not really cheap today. And that's because, yeah, the economy sucks for a decade and there's really no earnings. Now use some operating leverage, assume some gearing, assume a bit of pricing power in their businesses. I think you have some absolute home runs and you have a stock market that's really gone nowhere in 15 years you know, when you look at like Euro stocks or – but when you actually drill down, I mean, you know, the Portuguese stock market, the Spanish stock market, these things are down like 90 percent. And, you know, I, I get that, you know, financials make up a big piece of that uh, mess. But I think there's just huge opportunity in these markets that guys went there in like 2011 and said Europe's recovering and they bought these things. They've forgotten about them since. I mean, I have friends in like London who are finding things at three and four times earnings, and you'd think that's a major financial hub. It should be picked over, and it's not. You know, with with Brexit and with everything else going on in the world, there's a lot of companies that are 100 million market cap and below that have just been missed. And so, I don't think you even have to go to some frontier market without corporate governance. I mean, you can go to Spain, and you know, it, it, it's almost on par with uh, corporate governance here in North America. Like, and I, I think that that's where I would be spending my time. Uh, you know, I, I spent uh, two and a half weeks in Portugal quite recently. I think there's great opportunity there, probably more in real estate than in um, act, actual public equities. You know, I spent some time in Greece. I spent some time in Cyprus. I mean, I, I think these uh, fringe periphery places where interest costs are zero 
and all you need is some push on the stimulus side for the, the demand side, I think you'll see just dramatic returns in, in select uh, companies, and that's where I'd be putting my time. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, no, I love I love that answer. And you know, we're coming up on an hour fifteen here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it I'm gonna wrap it up with just kind of kind of some more you know questions on 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 who you are and kind of and kind of what you like to do outside the markets because I think a lot of people know you just for one thing, which is the shipping thesis. Uh, and, I'm and, a shipping guy. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like people don't realize that you know you are way more than that. And you you know you've got a life, you've got extracurriculars, you travel, and you know. So what are what are some of the things you know when you when you have to get away from the markets or when you you know when you kind of need to take a break? What are what are some of your outlets? So I love travel. That's like my hobby and passion. Remember, I'm a, I'm a history major. I'm not a uh, finance guy. I, I, I took one business school class in my life. Um, okay. I like going and seeing uh, interesting historic things or, you know, uh, I like traveling. And so my wife and I like, love traveling. We try to be on the road quite a lot. I find that a lot of mistakes are made being in front of your screen where – you know, this is the new data point every day. Sometimes the news seems really important, especially when all your friends call up and say, Cubby, did you see this? What's this mean? And sometimes you get uh, whipsawed and you, you sell something you don't want to sell or you, you know, make a mistake. And being away and just away from the noise and being able to think, I think it's actually healthy. Once you have a trade on or an investment, you believe strongly in it. You, you, you kind of check in once a day and you let it happen and you actually end up with a lot of free time if you're fully invested. So my wife and I, we, we do a lot of traveling and that's I think my passion. Uh, I like meeting people in different countries. Uh, I've been very lucky in that I've ended up with friends in almost every country on this earth. So wow. there's always someone to you know hang out and show me around and uh, I like food and drink and you know reading. And, uh, I don't know. I, that, that, that's my passion and hobby. So you were a history major in college. Um, Correct. It's, it's just so you know. I I I completely passed over this question, but you know, were there were 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 there any books or you know videos or anything that you read to kind of study up on 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 investing? So I think the number one book you can read is a book by Mark Faber uh, called Tomorrow's Gold, and of course it's about twenty years old now. So uh, his actual stock investments are kind of uh, not relevant anymore, uh, though you can always look back and see whether he's right about stuff or not. But I think it was more the, cons- the, 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 the way he conceptualized the world, where you basically have this bowl, and it's full of water, about halfway full, and as you tilt it, you know, some parts of the bowl get really deep and some parts get really shallow. And that's basically you know, the capital stack or the investor base of the financial system. And so if it gets really top-heavy in uh, FANG right now, well, somewhere else it's gotten really shallow, and that would be uh, cyclicals. And so if you have that sort of mental framework and you see how it's worked throughout history, it lets you go where the water is really shallow and there's not a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're, you're, you're likely to have, even if you're wrong, the water eventually come back at you sort of and you know, rising boat lifts the tide. And you, know, you could actually not be correcting your thesis and you might still make money. And it's unlikely you're going to lose money because it's priced in. And I think if you have that sort of conceptual framework, you're going to 
do very well in this business as long as you're not one of those guys that's forced to produce monthly numbers because they're trying to market their fund or you know they they have clients and pressures on them you know why are you volatile this month or why was the market up and you were down like that that sort of stuff messes with your uh, mental ability to think deeply you really need to be able to look at this stuff and th- rolling through your periods and say three years from now is this stock higher or lower. And if it's lower, do I lose money? And if it's higher, do I make enough money to make up for the, the risk I'm taking? And you know, I think that book changed my uh, thought process on investing more than any other book because part of investing is just knowing to look in the places where you have a very high uh, potential to make money. You know, If you go into FANG stocks and you have a differential view on Apple, I don't know. I mean Apple is just fun flows. It, yep. it, it's divorced from valuation in some ways. I, I don't see what edge I, I could analyze it for the rest of my life. I wouldn't have any competitive advantage there right now. Though there was a time where you could have bought Apple for very little more than the networking capital. And that was like three, four years ago where you could say, this yeah. is a phenomenal. <laughs> but I mean, think about it. Everyone said the growth is slowing and it was like net of cash. It was like six or eight times. Yep. And you can look at it and say, well, this is really cheap. E- even if the growth rate's slowing, this is really cheap for a high return on capital business with annuity stream you know, added in. Like this is mispriced. So the same stock, there are times where there's going to be a lot of opportunity, but right now isn't one of them. And if you use uh, Mark Faber's kind of analogy, if you go where the water's shallow, you know, you're going to be looking in the right places. And two thirds of this is just uh, dedicating your energy to places where, you know, it's, it's kind of like you go fishing where the, you know, in a place that's known to have a lot of fish. Like, and so I, I think when you have that framework and he walks you through, you know, a few hundred years of how these cycles repeat and everything's a cycle in finance. So if you have a backdrop in these cycles, and I'm a history major, so maybe that's why this one book seemed to, uh, and I read a lot of history too. It's not just, I had to get a degree though. I did. It's more that that was my passion at the time. So it just kind of resonated with me. Yeah. And it's almost, you know, it's, 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 it's also going to this idea and maybe, you know, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth here too. So let me know if, if, if that's the case, but it's also saying if you're going to take the time to put the research into an idea and you're going to allot that time, you might as well spend that time researching something that can give you that three to five or 10 bagger instead of the, you know, Hey, this thing's trading at 10. I think it can go to 15. Cause I think a lot of investors kind of get wrapped up in this idea of, you know, Oh, the stock's at 10. I think it's worth 15. Therefore I think it's, you know, I think it's a great bargain where you could spend the same amount of time looking at a stock that's, at 10 and yet you think it could go to 30 or 40 right and you know i think way too much mental energy is the 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 stock market's really well priced as i said there's the there's unlimited capital in this industry right now like if i wanted to do a side pocket i have 20 guys that will allocate capital to me right now um you know it's on their balance sheet but you know if the idea is good they will put it on so these things get priced really fast because you know there's a thousand guys like me with access to the similar capital or they have their own balance sheets and I have a combination of both. And so when you have a brilliant idea, it gets priced in fast. And so to go out there and say this thing's at 10 and I think it's worth 14, well, the market's probably telling you it's not right. It's it's 10. Or, and then you know you might get out at 14 in the next 18 months and that's just normal market volatility. That's not because you were right or wrong. That's just volatility. And when you own an equity, you're taking a lot of risk. I don't think people realize that they're taking risk. And so, to you know, risk ten to make four to make four, the odds are against you. 
you could take almost the same amount of risk and risk 10 to maybe get 100. And I've seen a lot of companies with sound balance sheets that amazingly go to zero in 18 months. You know, it, it, it happens. So never ever think that just because it's cash in the balance sheet that it's zero risk is always risk. And I would just say that those 10 baggers, it makes up for all the mistakes and you, you'd be foolish not to be looking for huge upside. Right. Looking back to, you know, if you, if, if you were going to, you know, look back at your, your investing life and knowing what you know now, what's, what's maybe one or two things that you would tell, you know, the early cuppy when he started out, which, you know, is probably going to be tough considering the early cuppy, you know, generated 200% return in his first year. But is there anything that you would tell your early self now that maybe first time or novice investors that are listening to this could, could maybe resonate with? <laughs> Never buy junior mining stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, if people make it to this long in the podcast, that's going to be worth it. <laughs> um, no, I, I, in 2008, I lost a phenomenal amount of money in junior mining stocks. And I, I really thought these things were real. I really thought that, you know, you were six months away from the mine starting and all this cash flow. And, you know, I wasn't doing drill plays. I'm not a geologist. I have no idea what the, what's in the ground. I was looking at stuff where they had bankable feasibilities and you had large banks that obviously had their own people doing research and, you know, they approved the loans. And, you know, you'd have a, a mine that's a $500 million capex and you're like $50 million over budget. So you figure, okay, it's 10% dilution or they, they bring on some mes debt or something. Like you, you don't really think of the risk of being $50 million over budget. And then 08 happened and everything went no bid. And the banks wouldn't give them any more capital, and uh, there's no mesdet provider at any price. And these guys, you know, you'd have a five dollar stock that dropped to thirty cents, and they'd literally, you know, triple the share count to raise fifty million dollars. And I never thought I'd get di as diluted as I did. Yeah. You look at the things I owned; every single one became a successful, profitable mine. But in multiple cases, I ended up owning ten percent as much of it as I thought. And you know, it's just amazing how when you don't have cash flow small errors in uh you know judgment can have material impacts on the outcome to yeah. equity and so uh having thought i was really smart at junior mining because i for a few years was very successful at it with similar situations you know you, you buy six months before they turn the mine online or you, maybe you turn it you, you buy after the mine comes online to have the first hiccup uh i, I just learned that you could lose a phenomenal amount of money even when you're right about the asset. And, you know, that it's very different when you, because you have no revenue until you're flip a switch and you're going. Mm -hmm. Versus, say, tankers, I could get it totally wrong about charter rates. And maybe they actually lose money in Q2 instead of making money. But at least I have revenue and it's going to make it through the cycle without diluting me. Right, right. Yep. Lesson, lesson of this whole podcast. I should. I, I you don't know, buy junior mining. I was no. about to say that's going to be the name of the title. Don't buy junior mining with Harris Coverman. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cuppy, where can people go to find out more about you? I mean, I know it kind of goes without saying that you're that you're on Twitter, but you know, are there are there are there other channels where if people want to reach out to you, they can. Well, I write a blog at Adventures in Capitalism. Uh, recommend uh, signing up. Uh, I, there's probably about one update a week, and I talk about whatever I feel like talking about. So recommend you sign up uh, on my blog. Uh, if you want to know more about my fund, uh, precap.com, P-R-A-C-A-P, uh, but only if you're accredited. And uh, otherwise, I tend to respond to email, though, with a lag. Got it. Now, last question that I ask everybody, and this is going to be interesting because you 
you know, have a friend in every country. So this is, this is, you know, something that I'm interested in. If you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, it doesn't have to be finance related. Uh, who would it be and why? Like a historical figure? Anybody, literally anybody. Past or uh, present. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm going to defer that one. <laughs> All right. We got our first deference, but that's fine. You know, we need, we need a first for everything. So Cuppy, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Um, I know a lot of people are going to get a lot out of it. Um, as, and you know, it's definitely as much as I did. So thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me on and glad you didn't ask any tanker questions. <laughs>